Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book nine, book nine, chapter two. Napoleon voices wishes of peace but acts with the obvious intent of war. Do you think he's lying or to surprise Russia? Or is he honestly hoping for peace and only backing it up with military might to bargain from a position of strength? The troops react to Napoleon much the same way the Russian army reacted to Alexander. Are they both deserving of this adoration? Or are the soldiers just rallying around an empty symbol of authority? Many men and horses die in a simple attempt to cross a river to impress a ruler that clearly doesn't care about their zeal or fervor. Do you think we'll see comparable examples of empty heroism from the Russians? Yeah, uh, that scene. God, it's... um one of the more memorable moments for me of the book of these men just just willingly marching to their death for no reason you know they don't even need to be trying to cross this river other than to just show that they are willing to die for no reason and then 40 or so of them die for no reason it's just dumb and then napoleon doesn't even acknowledge it and almost rightfully so, because, you know, what's that going to do? Encourage more people, you know? That's only going to make people... It's only going to mean that it had the desired effect for those people. I think you can't really do much other than ignore it and roll your eyes and say, like, oh, how dumb's that? Uh, weird. I think the levels of fame that Napoleon had is like we we just won't have anything like that again because we have people with fans at the moment and we know how crazy it is when someone has a, a, a an obsessed fan base like you you know billy eilish or justin bieber britney spears whoever it is you know there's always someone throughout time that just has a crazy fan base Beatlemania, you know but uh, the further back you go, I think the more intense it was because there is, you know, when Elvis had Elvis mania, there was no one else, you know, there was no one else in the world with his level of fame. So he was the most famous person in the world by virtue of the fact that he was that famous, if that makes sense. So on a like per capita basis, you, we just can't match that level of fame anymore. You're going to have 10 times as many fans as Elvis ever did, but it's still watered down by the fact that so many people are famous and there's so many people who just haven't heard of you. I don't know. It's a weird thing. Like, Elvis had 21 number one singles in um, in England, in the country he wasn't even from. He had 21 number one singles. Number ones. That's insane. That's insane. Uh, so I think, you know, we can't even fathom how, uh, like, what's the word? Um, obsessed, I guess. There's a better word I'm trying to think of. But, yeah, people were obsessed with him. That's zeal. Uh, Karakikas says, reading Vivat, all I could think was, witness me. 
Rustine V says, I finally caught up. Hey, welcome back. I've been several weeks behind since March, but I've always enjoyed reading the discussion thread, so I'm really happy to be able to participate. It's going to be hard to go back to reading only one chapter a day, though, after reading a few days of January. Sorry, I read that all wrong. After a day... Sorry, it's going to be hard to be to go back to reading only a chapter a day, though after a few days of reading, more than three per day in order to catch up. Yep. Um, I think this bit is a good point to introduce you back into the daily reads because we are at a few longer and, dare I say, a little bit drier chapters. The first two chapters haven't really given us much other than military manoeuvres and, and you know military leaders uh, and a little diatribe about history and historians in, in book one, book nine, chapter one. Restine V says, I don't think Napoleon is actually hoping for peace, while at the same time invading Russia. However, I'm also not sure what his real intentions are. He seems to be acting pretty spontaneously without an actual plan. I think he has a plan, right? It's Napoleon, one of the greatest military strategists of history. Twisted Every Way says, man, these soldiers and their adulation, that's the word I, well, that's a good word for what I was trying to think of. I guess generals were the celebrities of the 1800s. I don't know anything about military strategy, so who knows what Napoleon is up to. It's crazy, isn't it, that thought that they're just like, I love this guy so much. I'm so into this famous person that I'll just die if he wants me to. And that'll be cool. You know, there's no one who's ever been that famous for me, that much of an idol, that much of a hero, that I would just die <laughs> for them to witness me. So uh, I guess we can't relate. It's like, I don't know, it feels like something that hasn't happened for a long time, or at least I'm not really aware of it. And maybe never again. Let's read chapter three. I'm ready to keep going goes like this. The Emperor of Russia had, meanwhile, been in Vilna for more than a month, reviewing troops and holding maneuvers. Nothing was ready for the war that... Sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nothing was ready for the war that everyone expected, and to prepare for which the Emperor had come from Petersburg. There was no general plan of action. The vacillation between the various plans that were proposed had even increased after the emperor had been at headquarters for a month. Each of the three armies had its own commander-in-chief, but there was no supreme commander of all the forces, and the emperor did not assume that responsibility himself. The longer the emperor remained in Vilna, the less did everybody, tired of waiting, prepare for the war. All the efforts of those who surrounded the sovereign seemed directed merely to making him spend his time pleasantly and forget that the war was impending. In June, after many balls and fates given by the Polish magnates and by the courtiers and by the emperor himself, it occurred to one of the Polish aides de camp in attendance that a dinner and ball should be given for the emperor by his aides de camp. This idea was eagerly received. The emperor gave his consent. The aides de camp collected money by subscription. The lady who was thought to be most pleasing to the emperor was invited to act as hostess, Count Benigsen, being a landowner in the Vilna province, offered his country house for the fete, and the 13th of June was fixed for a ball, dinner, regatta, and fireworks at Zakret, Count Benningsen's country seat. 
the very day that Napoleon issued the order to cross the Neumann, and his vanguard driving off the Cossacks crossed the Russian frontier, Alexander spent the evening at the entertainment given by his aides-de-camp at Bennigsen's country house. It was a gay and brilliant fete. Connoisseurs of such matters declared that rarely had so many beautiful women been assembled in one place. Countess Bezukhova was present, among the other Russian ladies who had followed the sovereign from Petersburg to Vilna and eclipsed the refined Polish ladies by her massive so-called Russian type of beauty. The emperor noticed her and honoured her with a dance. Boris Drubetskoy, having left his wife in Moscow for, and being for the present en garçon, as he phrased it, was also there, and though not an aide-de-camp, had subscribed a large sum towards the expense. Boris was now a rich man who had risen to high honours and no longer sought patronage, but stood on an equal footing with the highest of those of his own age. He was meeting Helena in Vilna, after not having seen her for a long time, and did not recall the past, but as Helena was enjoying the favours of a very important personage, and Boris had only recently married, they met as good friends of long standing. At midnight, dancing was still going on. Helena, not having a suitable partner, herself offered to dance the mazurka with Boris. They were the third couple. Boris, coolly looking at Helena's dazzling bare shoulders, which emerged from a dark gold-embroidered gal's gown, talked to her of old acquaintances and at the same time, unaware of himself and unnoticed by others, never for an instant ceased to observe, observe the emperor who was in the same room. The emperor was not dancing. He stood in the doorway, stopping now one pair and now another with gracious words which he alone knew how to utter. As the mazurka began, Boris saw that adjutant General Balashev, one of those in closest attendance on the emperor, went up to him and, contrary to court etiquette, stood near him while he was talking to a Polish lady. Having finished speaking to her, the emperor looked inquiringly at Balashev and, evidently understanding that he only acted thus because there were important reasons for doing so, nodded slightly to the lady and turned to him. Hardly had Balashev begun to speak before a look of amazement appeared on the emperor's face. He took Balashev by the arm and crossed the room with him unconsciously clearing a path seven yards wide as the people on both sides made way for him. Boris noticed Arakchev's excited face when the sovereign went out with Balashev. Arakchev looked at the emperor from under his brow and, sniffing with his red nose, stepped forward from the crowd as if expecting the emperor to address him. Boris understood that Arakchev en envied Balashev and was displeased that evidently important news had reached the emperor otherwise than through himself. But the Emperor and Balashev passed out into the illuminated garden without noticing Arakchev, who, holding his sword and glancing wrathfully around, followed some twenty paces behind them. All the time Boris was going through the figures of the mazurka, he was worried by the question of what news Balashev had brought and how he could find it out before others. In the figure in which he had to choose two ladies, he whispered to Helena that he meant to choose Countess Potoka, who he thought had gone out onto the veranda and glided over the parquet to the door opening into the garden, where, seeing Balashev and the emperor returning to the veranda, he stood still. They were moving toward the door. Boris, fluttering as if he had not had time to withdraw, respectfully pressed close, close to the doorpost with bowed head. The emperor, with the agitation of one who has been personally affronted, was wishing with the sorry, was finishing with these words. 
to enter Russia without declaring war. I will not make peace as long as a single armed enemy remains in my country. It seemed to Boris that it gave the emperor pleasure to utter these words. He was satisfied with the form in which he had expressed his thoughts, but displeased that Boris had overheard it. Let no one know of it, the emperor added with a frown. Boris understood that this was meant for him, and closing his eyes slightly bowed his head. The emperor re-entered the ballroom and remained there about another half hour. Boris was thus the first to learn the news that the French army had crossed the Neiman, and, thanks to this, was able to show certain important personages that much that was concealed from others was usually known to him, and by this means he rose higher in their estimation. The unexpected news of the French having crossed the Neiman was particularly startling after a month of unfulfilled expectations and at a ball. On first receiving the news, under the influence of indignation and resentment, the Emperor had found a phrase that pleased him, fully expressed his feelings, and has since become famous. On returning home at two o'clock that night, he sent for his secretary, Shishkov, and told him to write an order to the troops and a rescript to Field Marshal Prince Saltikov, in which he insisted on the words being inserted that he would not make peace so long as a single armed Frenchman remained on Russian soil. Next day the following letter was sent to Napoleon. Monsieur Monfrère, yesterday I learned that despite the loyalty with which I have kept my engagement with your majesty, your troops have crossed the Russian frontier, and I have this moment received from Petersburg a note in which Count Lauriston informs me as a reason for this aggression that your majesty has considered yourself to be in a state of war with me from the time Prince Kurakin asked for his passports. The reason on which the Duc de Bassano based his refusal to deliver them to him would never have led me to suppose that that could serve as a pretext for aggression. In fact, the ambassador, as he himself has declared, was never authorized to make that demand, and as soon as I was informed of it, I let him know how much I disapproved of it and ordered him to remain at his post. If your majesty does not intend to shed the blood of our peoples for such a misunderstanding and consents to withdraw your troops from Russian territory, I will regard what has passed as not having occurred and an understanding between us will be possible. In the contrary case, your majesty, I shall see myself forced to repel an attack that nothing on my part has provoked. It still depends on your majesty to preserve humanity from the calamity of another war. I am, etc. Signed, Alexander. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. War is brewing. The French have entered Russian land. Eek. Have your say about it on the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.